Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. What Margaret and I are going to talk about after she's read us a selection from Oryx and Crake is this new book, which is described as a dystopia, therefore making your second dystopia. Um, Some people have suggested that it's greedy for anybody to have two dystopias. Uh, So we'll be exploring at some point, if Margaret is forced to choose between her dystopias, which one she'll settle for, uh, and which one we ought to be most worried about, uh, and why. But first, I'd like to ask Margaret to read... Well, actually, what I'd like to ask her to do is to welcome Margaret here, and then I'd like to ask her to read. So, welcome to until they did it first. Other than that, I'm the soul of kindness and understanding. Um, But I did come from Canada in the 60s. Can't hear. Person on sound. Turn up volume, please. Why don't I speak right into this one? How about that? How's that at the back? Good. I did come from Canada in the 60s where you were regarded as a sort of freak if you wrote a book. So my first interviewers were less than cordial. And my first interviews used to go something like, so, what makes you think you can write a book? Uh, I certainly haven't read it and I'm not going to. Um, Could you just summarize the plot for us in three sentences? That's how I got like that. They, they don't do that anymore. I uh, first came to Hay in its very early days, the flapping tent days, uh, before they had the duck boards when it rained. So I consider myself a veteran of it. I'm just going to read one page, but first I'll set the scene. Uh, The name of the book is Oryx and Crake. The narrator is a man throughout. And uh, this man started life as a boy called Jimmy, and then he became an adolescent boy called Jimmy and a young man called Jimmy. But when we meet him, he has renamed himself Snowman after the abominable snowman, an animal or human which may may or may not exist, which is how he has come to think of himself. And in the first part of the book, he's um, living in a tree, wearing a bed sheet. He has a couple of other possessions. He has a watch that doesn't work and a pair of sunglasses with only one lens. And there are no other people around. There are some people who are sort of like people. They look like people, except they're better looking. And uh, they have, however, been modified Some of the modifications, I think, would be quite good. They have, for instance, built-in mosquito repellent, which I'm all for. And uh, 
They have built-in sunblock, and not only are they completely vegetarian, their digestive system has been redesigned to accommodate leaves, uncooked leaves, which means that they have been altered in the direction of rabbits. Um, you may be surprised to learn that according to the National Geographic issue before last, you are slightly more closely related to rabbits than you may have thought. Uh, he also, they also have um, solved the problem of intermittent monogamy and sexual jealousy, which means they will never write Shakespeare, uh, because they are only um, intermittently sexual, and these periods are signaled by clear color changes, which I think would be a great advantage. <laughs> no more um, no means yes. Everything is very clear. Parts of you either turn blue or they don't. <laughs> Someone said to me the other day, don't you think this would make a good film? And I said, <laughs> there may be certain drawbacks. Anyway, poor snowman Jimmy is all alone people-wise because these other humanoids in his vicinity can't really understand him emotionally. And they certainly have no idea of what he's recently been through. They're innocent of, of um, the past. He stands up and raises his arms to stretch and his sheet falls off. He looks down at his body with dismay. The grimy, bug-bitten skin, the salt and pepper tufts of hair, the thickening yellow toenails. Naked as the day he was born, not that he can remember a thing about that. So many crucial events take place behind people's backs when they aren't in a position to watch. Birth and death, for instance, and the temporary oblivion of sex. Don't even think about it, he tells himself. Sex is like drink. It's bad to start brooding about it too early in the day. He is to take good care of himself. He is to run, work out at the gym. Now he can see his own ribs. He's wasting away. Not enough animal protein. A woman's voice says caressingly in his ear, nice buns. It isn't Oryx, it's some other woman. Oryx is no longer very talkative. Say anything, he implores her. She can hear him, he needs to believe that, but she's giving him the silent treatment. What can I do, he asks her. You know I, oh, nice abs, comes the whisper interrupting him. Honey, just lie back. Who is it? Some tart he once bought. Revision professional sex skills expert. A trapeze artist, rubber spine, spangles glued onto her like the scales of a fish. He hates these echoes. Saints used to hear them, crazed, lice-infested hermits in their caves and deserts. Pretty soon he'll be seeing beautiful demons beckoning to him, licking their lips with red-hot nipples and flickering pink tongues. Mermaids will rise from the waves out there beyond the crumbling towers, and he'll hear their lovely singing and swim out to them and be eaten by sharks. Creatures with the heads and breasts of women and the talons of eagles will swoop down on him, and he'll open his arms to them, and that will be the end. Brain frizz. Or worse, 
Some girl he knows or knew will come walking towards him through the trees, and she'll be happy to see him, but she'll be made of air. He'd welcome even that for the company. He scans the horizon using his one sun-glassed eye. Nothing. The sea is hot metal, the sky a bleached blue, except for the hole burnt in it by the sun. Everything is so empty. Water, sand, sky, trees, fragments of past time. Nobody to hear him. Do you think it'll work if I do that? I think so, yeah, so that you don't have to hold it. Let's stick it up there. How about that? There. <laughs> slightly kind of long John Silver. There. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Okay, let's, let's see if that works. Um, <laughs> why, the, the first question I want to ask is why this dystopia? I mean, as you say, you've got a guy on a beach. It's after practically the whole human race... Uh, has been wiped out. Am I allowed to say that? I think so. Yeah, good. Are you, never sh I mean, actually, you know that right at the beginning, don't you? So that's all right. Well, that's not the either, they're, either they've been wiped out or they're all in Florida. <laughs> they're, just, they're, not where, <laughs> they're not where he is. Let's put it that way. Right. Okay. Um, uh, they've been wiped out or as bad as wiped out. And, um, <laughs> and he's living by the, by the, by, beside these crea created people who have some of the characteristics that you, uh, you referred to earlier and one or two more that make it even more difficult to film that you didn't quite mention. Um, like the dance, you didn't mention the I dance. I didn't mention the, the dance. The dance that no. the tumescent men do, or male creatures. Um, blue, blue ones. Blue ones, yes. yes. Blue ones. Um, but they've come to this through a, uh, an act of a human being, uh, which is the result of a series of other acts by corporations and human beings in messing around with food, messing around with medicine, messing around with technology, and have come to this, come to this point. Um, and the act, action of it is, what, a few decades in the future? I would say Jimmy is now four. Okay. I think he's already been born. And I think I may have been a bit generous with time. Um, that is, I think the, these things could, um, I think the timeline might be a bit more speeded up than that. So this is, this is something that you say could credibly happen, or a it, series of events yeah, that could, could happen. It is a, yeah, it's yeah. a speculative fiction, not a, uh, it's not outer space, it's not another planet. It's planet Earth and the backup for all of the things in the book are in the ominous brown research box in the cellar. So it's like The Handmaid's Tale in that I didn't put into it anything that human beings have not done already or aren't doing right now or aren't thinking about doing right now or any uh, um, tendencies that are not already with us. Okay, but even so, you chose this combination um, and created them. Them. Why, why these ones? These are the ones we have. <laughs> these are the ones that are actually with us right now. And um, don't know whether you remember that book called A Perfect Storm, which uh, took, um, which 
dissected a perfect storm and said that had it not been for the joining together of several disparate uh, elements, the perfect storm wouldn't have happened. And it's the same with us right now. We're, we're on a path that leads to a convergence of various elements. First of all, uh, human population is expected to peak at 10 billion in the year 2050. Uh, second, we're running out of stuff. We're running out of stuff to eat, uh, just for starters. We've done away with 90% of fish stocks over the past 50 years. So we've only got 10 left, 10% left of what used to be there. Uh, and thirdly, and parallel to that, we've just opened the biggest toy box in the world, uh, which is the components of living things, which we can now uh, combine in just about any way we want to including um, the components for human beings themselves. We haven't quite done that yet, but we're working busily away at it, even as we speak. The luminous green rabbit on the inside of the dust jacket um, is with us already. Guy wanted one for his magic act. <laughs> so instead of just pulling a rabbit out of his hat, he would be able to pull a light-up rabbit. So we have that, and two weeks ago, we saw on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, we now have the luminous blue fish, which is selling like hotcakes as a novelty item, and uh, it is said to be 90% sterile. What is this luminous blue fish? I, I, I think in it, Britain we've it missed glows. it. It glows, yes. It's a thing you put in your fish tank and it glows. And it's, it's somebody's manufactured somebody's it to be like that. Somebody spliced it together, yes, for, for our, our entertainment. entertainment and enjoyment, yes. Okay, so here's a series of tendencies that come together this, uh, as you say, the shortage of natural resources, um, plus our ability to manipulate. Um, now, one thing you could say about the book is in each case, what has happened is the worst thing that could happen. Well, no, some of the things are actually pretty good. As I said, built-in mosquito repellent would be a plus. I mean, there's <laughs> it's a will, an ill wind that blows nobody any good. Uh, so, and it's not an anti-science book either, because science is, is a human tool, like all of the other human tools that we make. However, it is human beings who decide what to use those tools for. So you have a lot of this uh, technological development, but in the future, um, and this is the tendency today. It's become completely commercialized. So things are made that other people, that the people making them hope other people will want to buy. And the market is mani manipulated in other ways as well. That is, uh, so many diseases have been cured that people are get, getting a bit worried that the market for drugs may plummet. What would you do in that case? if you were a drug company. Uh, manufacture an illness. Manufacture an illness. You see, it didn't take you long to think of that. Well, I've read the book. <laughs> <laughs> and we've seen what the tobacco companies did with the research, uh, their own research, uh, that said you might get cancer from smoking. They suppressed it, as we know. And we also know that various drug companies have done the same about their own drugs. It's, when the profit mo motive is so important, there is a great temptation to do those things. Yeah, although some people might think that killing your uh, 
your target market is not so bright. But I suppose you have to, if you're going to... Well, you don't want to kill your target market before you've extracted all of their money from mm. them. So the thing to do would be to kill them slowly. <laughs> it, it makes me wonder whether you ever heard an old song called I'm the man, the very fat man, what waters the workers beer. <laughs> no. <laughs> Which, yeah, from the 30s, which operates along much the same kind of ideological Well, they used to put chalk in the bread in the 19th century, as you know. I didn't know that, no. I didn't know that. But I do, but I do now. But, but, but apart from the Moscow mosquito repellent, which I think is actually probably the most optimistic and, and the blueness, as you say, um, the, rest of it, the rest of it actually is highly negative. All the trends that you talk about are taken, are, 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 are at their most negative. So, for instance, the companies do invent illnesses. I'd love to be proved wrong. Mm -hmm. Nothing would delight me more. But, okay, let's take an example. Um, there's very little for people, choice for anybody to have that. In fact, choice has nearly disappeared. So everybody gets to eat or drink almost exactly the same things. Um, not entirely. Uh, so society has, has uh, gone even further in the direction it's going now in that um, very smart, necessary people live inside compounds where they get the best of everything and have lots of security. It's hard to get in, it's also hard to get out. They're just in there, um, complete with their golf courses and restaurants and movie theaters and houses and everything else you might need. Don't know whether you know about gated communities in the States. Well, they're sort of like that, only much more so. So those people have um, certain kinds of choice. People on the outside who live in the plebe lands um, have other kinds of choices. Uh, the, the plebe lands are a wide open district. People have more or less given up on um, controlling public space and making it safe. So it's not a very safe place, but you can buy lots of different things. What you are having a hard time acquiring is things like, like beef. There are quite a few soy products in the future coming your way. <laughs> Yes, soy, oh boy, hamburger, no, fries. And is it burgers and fries? Oh, everything, yes. yes. So sardines. Soya sardines. Those yeah. are really bad. <laughs> but if you're, if you're in the upper echelons, you can still get real food. It's just very, very scarce. So it's quite expensive. And as you say, there are these substantial companies um, which operate. I mean, what, what's, what's extraordinary about this is about is how the bo whole book really is about eating and bodies, um, essentially, isn't it? Um, Can't do without them yet. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, no, certainly I can't. Um, <laughs> but um, so it's kind of very rooted in in people's physicality, enormously rooted in people's phys uh, physicality. Yeah, I think people are rooted in their own physicality quite a lot. Um, but authors don't often like to say so, do they? Or they often, they often don't pay an incredible amount of regard to that once you've given a description of somebody. Those are different kinds of books. No, I don't think Jane Austen pays much attention to it. No. Uh, because she's more interested in the, in the uh, romance that's going on and the social interactions. And indeed, so is, so is Jimmy in his, in his past life. But right now, he's in a in a present time in which physical life is very, very hard for him. So he really has to pay a lot of attention to his body because essentially he's dying. 
is uh, running out of food. He has to go in search of, of more. That's the Jimmy that's in the tree. Yeah, the, the, however, the Jimmy that's in the tree is only kind of slightly worse off in a way than the Jimmy who's in the compound. Oh, I'd say he's much worse off. Yeah? Have you ever lived in a tree? <laughs> well. <laughs> um, only for a few days. Um, <laughs> and it was quite a big tree. Um, a comfortable tree. But what, what, what I meant by that was his life actually before the disaster is pretty awful. It's, it's circumscribed by the very few things that you can get to eat by the monopolies, by companies like Happy Cuppa. It's, it's, it's difficult to get out of the compounds they're in because of the security. He sits at home. Um, well, remember he grew up this way. So actually he doesn't... If, if you had, were plucked out of your, your present existence and put in there, you'd probably find it quite difficult. But uh, children... Whatever they grow up in is normal to them uh, until they get to an, the age of reflection. You know, they just think this is what life is like. So it's actually not so bad. He's certainly very secure. You know, there's lots of security. It would be bad for you, um, but it's not actually that bad for him because that's what he's used to. Except it's bad for his mother. His mother, his, is a, his mother can remember an earlier time in which things were different. And uh, Jimmy, as an adolescent, just finds this boring. I mean, he just finds her, her reminiscences boring, the way adolescent kids tend to find the reminiscences of their parents. And he just thinks that uh, people who go on that way are, are, we would say, whining. He would say, whinging. <laughs> he thinks she's whinging. Yeah. So he doesn't have much patience with it when he's growing up. And she's a kind of, she becomes a kind of resistance figure who he later begins to see is quite brave. Well, he's... What does she do, really? I mean, some people have said to me, isn't she the moral voice of the book? And I, and I say, well, consider what she did. First of all, she abandoned him. Second, she took his pet, which happens to be a blend of skunk and raccoon, another good idea, I think. Um, <laughs> because it has the best characteristics of both. You know, very cute, doesn't smell, and uh, doesn't grow up to rip your house apart the way a raccoon would. So, nice temperament. Uh, he takes this wonderful pet of his and, and liberates it without asking him. My sister-in-law was very annoyed by that. She said, what a horrible mother. She was very uh, upset by it, to take a child's animal and... and um, let it go somewhere. Don't you think that's bad? Yeah, I, I didn't like her for it, um, I must say. And actually, that kind of brings to an, an element of the, of the pessimism of the, of the book, which is that even the forces of opposition, as you suggest, are tedious. I mean, there's very kind of... The, the well, Plevelands have a politics which is characterised by occasional assassinations and riots about various things. Oh, quite a few, I would say. Yeah which you get on the television. There's executions going on all the time, which people can watch live off television, a kind of expanded version of, rea of reality shows. There's a lobby for that right now in the States. I think it would be a, quite a good idea. Yeah. 
Uh, well, I mean, there's a program over here called Big Brother, and I think quite a few of us would like to see the same thing happen over here. Um, um, uh, but actually, probably to the producers rather than the people involved. Um, but, and then, the, the few moments when you get a kind of sight of the resistance, it is pathetic. It's kind of people with ponytails and, you know, sort of, and paunches and so on, uh, who, who classically at one moment throw boxes of Happy Cupper into Boston Harbour, not realising that they float. And you have Craig say, you know, shit for brains. Didn't, you know, why didn't they tie some stones to it? So it's all, it's all hopeless, really. Well, remember this is through the point of view of adolescent boys. And they do tend to find almost everything that the adult world does pretty hopeless. Don't you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I have an adolescent, an adolescent girl, so. Yeah, so, so you have to different. keep the narrative point of view in mind. It's not necessarily the same as the authorial point of view. It is the voice of, of Jimmy throughout. We hear everything in this book through him. And I have to say also, there's jokes in this book. It's not all. <laughs> <laughs> it's not surely, surely, uh, it's not all um, doom and gloom. Is this the I wasn't being serious defense? No, it's the people make jokes no matter what defense. Mm. So, or maybe I'll revise that. Some people make jokes no matter what. And you're certainly one of them. Um, <laughs> And I think I'm, great, I, I'm very grateful for that, um, so far. Um, <laughs> let's, let's talk a bit about Jimmy himself, because as far as I know, he's your first male n narrator. He's the first all the way through the book yeah. one. There's other ones that have parts of books, but he's the first one that's got a whole book all to himself. Yeah, why did you do that? Because it was there. Uh, because uh, it would be quite a different story if it were a female narrator. Um, it just wouldn't be the same thing at all. Why? Why? How many adolescent girls do you know that would spend that many hours playing uh, video games of the description of the ones that Jimmy and his friend Craig play for hours on end? They'll play them sometimes, but not usually to that extent. That's just for starters. And? What's for, what's for the next course? Well, you know, we could go into it at, at some length, but it does tend to be, most utopias and dystopias have actually been written by, by men. And it does seem to be more of a, their tendency to do blueprints of the world of this kind, rearrange the world, or even play video games in which you rearrange the world, or in fact, re rearrange the world in reality. You know, redraw re the map of the Middle East and, and that kind of thing. That doesn't tend to be uh, women masterminds doing it as a rule. Uh, any, any of those big picture, big picture playing with the world kinds of things. So he, he, has, 
because he gets to play the games and he plays Extinctathon with Craig, it's necessary to be with him. But there was something else going on there as well, because I, I felt, and please don't shoot me down, I, I felt you rather fancied him. Oh, I did, uh, as a character to write about, absolutely. But he's not, um, it has to be said, said, he's not very competent in the wilderness. He uh, could have benefited a lot from a few weeks in the Boy Scouts, you know. He doesn't really know um, any survival skills, despite the do-it-yourself books that he's read on the subject in which he can't remember very clearly. Uh, he can't make holes in the ground with stakes on the bottom to catch small game, you know. He just doesn't know how to do that. So he is somewhat at a loss, but he is therefore much the way most people would be if they found themselves in this predicament, i.e. somewhat inept. So what else can I say about him? He's a, he's a word person. He's not a numbers person. And he's grown up in a numbers person society, and therefore he feels himself uh, odd man out. And instead of going to the Watson Crick Academy Institute, like his friend Craig, who is a numbers person, which has the best of everything, including real food, he gets shuffled off to the Martha Graham Institute, um, <laughs> a crumbling lib liberal arts establishment, which is underfunded, and where the food looks like um, cat vomit, essentially. And where you say the student services people um, are ex-TV soap actors. Yes. Who are incredibly cross to find themselves in that role and therefore not very good. They're not very polite. <laughs> feel these kind of, these people being ticked off one at a time. Well, well in the future you'll be able to make your own TV soaps because you'll be able to digitalize everything yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, Jimmy, for instance, makes an, uh, a naked to the lighthouse and um, he is an adolescent boy. And he also makes a naked pride and prejudice. That's right. <laughs> you can choose, you know, costume, plot, characters, <laughs> lighting. Yes. This is on the way. The naked pride Be and prejudice. No, no, being able to. <laughs> <laughs> Being able to re-digitalize yourself any program, movie, or novel you want. Yes. Yes. You're, you seem very discouraged by all of this. Well, I mean, if Jimmy's about four, then those of us with, say, kids of about six are invited to, to kind of look at this. Yes, but you see, it, none of it's happened yet. It's like, it's like Scrooge during a Christmas carol. He wakes up in the morning and it's all just a bad dream. And you have that choice as a reader. You can wake up in the morning and say, it's my real bedpost. <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. No, I suppose what I'm disconcerted by is, is because it's such a kind of physical book, because it is about, as I say, what you eat, and it's quite a lot about sex. And incidentally, when I said you fancied Jimmy, I didn't mean it in the sense. I meant you thought he was quite attractive. After the description I just read of him. Yeah, even so, and that amazed me. Yes, well, well let's really put it this way. A, he really needs a shower. <laughs> <laughs> but if, once he'd had the shower, he was all right, wasn't he? No, he's kind of concave and scabby. 
Oh, no, not at the end. Not at the end. I mean, before the end. Well, women seem to fall for him very well. I mean, you know, I, it's always... It's, I mean, I, I thought, having taken the risk of writing about an adolescent boy's sexuality, it came, out, it came out extremely well, but I thought you were incredibly nice about it. You thought I was nice about yeah, it? Yeah, and the women who were with him were incredibly nice about it. Well, he, is a, he tells lots of jokes, and women actually like that. They like being amused. Have you noticed that? <laughs> yeah. There's a, except there's a kind of voluntary, involuntary problem sometimes there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's life really, isn't it? Well, you're doing very well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... Th I th you, there's a one point at which... Let's move on quickly. <laughs> There's one point at which Jimmy says, um, uh, gets very cross with the woman, and he, and he says, you only want me for my body. I think he says that to the, to the um, quasi-dogs that are circling around his tree at night. <laughs> no. <laughs> I think he says it to them. No, no, surely he says it to, he says, <laughs> he says it to, he says it to this married woman. I remember this bit extremely well. Uh, <laughs> Oh, so, yeah, he does say yeah, it to her, too. Because it's yeah. something that most men dream of being able to say. <laughs> <laughs> and never get to. And I thought at this point, well, he's got a lot going for him. And she's being really rather kind to him, giving him... Yeah, she was quite kind to him, yeah. you know. Um, people like him do bring out the nurse in women. They want to sort of help him out. Okay. Now, um, you've written two dystopias, and... Some people would say that if you've written two dystopias, then you must be a science fiction writer. You say, well, I'm not, I don't like science fiction. It's got all that. No, no, I never said that. Never, yeah. never, never. I read lots of it. I just can't write it. Really? Yeah. But you call it speculative fiction. Yeah, well, I think fiction. George Orwell, 1984, speculative fiction. Brave New World, speculative fiction. H.G. Um, Wells, War of the Worlds, science fiction. Hmm smart squids in canisters shot from Mars. Definitely science fiction. I don't know, Margaret, they're doing it now. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, but Orwell famously only had one, and you've got, he's had two. You count Animal Farm? Yeah, I do. I shouldn't, but I do. Because I read it at the age of nine, and it ruined me. Um, I thought it was going to be like Wind in the Willows. <laughs> <laughs> there is no scene at the end where the, where the good characters get to have a party. I mean, there was just none. The horse gets made into dog food and the pigs win. It was, I, I, I was so upset by that. Anyway, then I read 1984 at the age of 14 or so, and that was very upsetting too. Mm. So... Um, there you are. I imprinted on them. But um, there is a difference. Speculative fiction takes stuff we have now or stuff we're thinking about doing. Um, it's on planet Earth. It's not on some other planet. And it's not uh, alien beings. It's us. So it's not Star Trek. It's things we might actually do. But does having written Oryx and Crake mean that you think The Handmaid's Tale is less true than it was. Well, if we're re really, really lucky, we'll get a combination of the two. <laughs> there is a book by Evgeny Zemyatin called We, which was written in 1924 by um, a Russian person 
um, in the early stages of the revolution. And they, he wasn't allowed to publish it, needless to say, but it is a combination of those two kinds of things. It's got the big brother plus the uh, brave new world, everybody sh must be happy sort of thing. No, I don't think we're gonna get, um, I think it would be very hard to get uh, in the same country, uh, Handmaid's Tale and Oryx and Crake, but Oryx and Crake is more global. Handmaid's Tale was, Tale was actually confined to, to what used to be the United States. And uh, England, for instance, in that book is free of it, you'll be happy to know, because England already did all of that. They did it under Oliver Cromwell, and uh, so delightful did they find the experience that they've never wanted to do it again. So you're unlikely to do that. Aren't you happy to know that? Yeah. In fact, in The Handmaid's Tale, England is the country of choice where, where escaped women want to go because they've got helpful committees, and I, I do depend on you to have helpful committees. <laughs> I think we have the, the core of them here, right, right here. We'll go out and, and do them. So, so it was, it was country-specific, yeah. and um, Oryx and Craig is dealing with tendencies that are global rather than country-specific and allied to politics. So it's global and, and allied to what's going on with um, the earth right now. So you can have them both? I don't think you're likely to have them both in the same place. No, but you're, but you're gonna stick to them both. You're not, you're not gonna abandon one for the other. They still c easily coexist in your head. Yes, yes, I'm afraid they do. I don't know how closely you follow American politics, but um, Yes, they do. <laughs> can I, before we put this, can I uh, uh, ask for questions? Um, just ask you whether your publishers have suggested to you that the brand name Chicky Knobs might, might have a different connotation in Britain than it does <laughs> in North America. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and would actually far more nearly make a brand of pornography than, uh, than, a, well, than the, a chicken delicacy. The item but, itself is some might say a different kind of pornography because it is a, um, <laughs> it's a chicken object. It's no longer a chicken. It is uh, somewhat vertical in shape and uh, it has an orifice at the top into which the nutrients are poured. It has no feet and it's got no head and it's got no brain. And uh, <laughs> it's, <laughs> It's, it's pink, um, <laughs> but out of it grow according to your item of choice. You can get breasts growing out of it. That's pretty perverse. Um, or you can get legs or thighs growing out of it, and these can just be snipped off because it makes lots of them at a time. And it would therefore solve the problems posed by animal rights activists who, says, who say that battery farming uh, chickens makes them suffer. This thing doesn't suffer because it doesn't have a brain. Uh, so it just grows chicken-like things out of itself. And all this in the week that we saw those chicken breasts being injected with God knows what in Yeah, so that won't Holland. be the problem in the future because you'll have this wonderful new invention. You won't need to inject goo into chickens anymore. 
And it's it's not good. Yeah. <laughs> if it wasn't for the fact that your creations keep on coming back to get people. I mean, the, for, for me, one of the most memorable bits in the book is when he's chased around by a group of pigoons, which are the pigs that are created to harvest for organs. Those are on the way. Yes, we're doing those. Uh, but in the future, we've also got human neocortex tissue growing in them in case you might need a brain implant. Um, and when they get out, of course, they're a lot smarter than real pigs. And real pigs are already pretty smart, as anybody knows has ever had anything to do with them. They're clever. They're also omnivorous. They'll eat anything. So if we... If our grandchildren get hunted down by one of these things, we'll know what to think of Christopher Reeve, won't we? Really? Um, okay. Maybe that one was a joke too far. <laughs> <laughs> right, what I'd like to do is to now ask anybody who would like to put a question to Margaret to put it. We've got two roving microphones. I see one there and one up there. Um, and I'll take two at a time, I'll denote two people at a time, so that there's one blue hand over there, and I've got a, yes, somebody right in the middle over there, so yes, you first. Uh, Margaret, can I just ask what you think happens after the ending of the novel, without giving it all away, if a human being is faced with a choice to make friends or enemies, what do you think in your heart of hearts that person would choose? Well, now, uh, we don't want to talk about the end, do we? Uh, let us just say that, that I leave the book uh, at a place where that choice is up to the reader. So it's not for me to choose. It's for you, the reader of the book, to make your own choice. And so far, it's split. So far, uh, it's about half and half enemies and half and half friends. Sorry, let me rephrase that. It's half enemies and half friends. There's, yes. I was interested in what you had to say about language in the novel. Um, Snowman repeats words to himself in order to remember them. I was reminded of um, Duncan in The Edible Woman, who said words are beginning to lose their meaning. Um, I wondered if you could say a bit about what you thought about the future of language. The future of language. We are... Um, uh, language is one of the things that defines us as, as human. Um, not having, a, having mm -hmm. a language, because lots of animals have languages, but the language of the kind that we have, which includes a future tense and a conditional tense, we seem to be the only species that does that as far as we know. We're, we're the only what-if animal, and we're also the only one uh, that, in, that engages in, in long narrations, such as novels and the Iliad and so forth, um, about people who aren't um, present at the time. So I think it's central to what human beings are. and. Um, we do see lots of ways in which language is spun. I'm sure you read newspaper editorials. Um, and as I say, I read 1984 when I was 14, and language is very important to that book as, as well. So in his attempt to hang on to language, although he also perverts it, you know, he does both at the same time. 
Um, I would say Jimmy is quintessentially human. Right, there's a person right way up there in black, and then I'll take this person over here in the front. I'd be interested to know um, if there are any dystopic novels that Margaret Atwood feels have become broadly true um, today. Are there any dystopic novels that I feel have become broadly true today? Well, I think in the 19, um, after 1989, when the wall came down, we all thought 1984 was over. You know, that was gone. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have a big brother totalitarian dictatorship of that kind anymore, and that Brave New World was winning the race, that now it was going to be shopping uh, orgies and mood-altering drugs, um, but, not, but not Big Brother. However, that feeling of the 1990s seems to have been wrong, and we seem to be heading towards a situation in which not only are there lots of um, big brother dictatorships around the world, they just don't happen to be right here at the moment, uh, but also we're getting uh, a big push for more surveillance, more security, uh, more people knowing your business, uh, people having the power to go into your bank accounts and your home without telling you. Uh, all of this kind of thing is now, is now with us suddenly after 9-11. So maybe we're going to be back in Evgeny Zemyatin's we, in which um, you have to look happy all the time or people think you're weird. Um, and also, everybody's looking at you all the time. In that novel, everyone lives in a glass cubicle. They do have um, the ability to pull down the window shades when they're having pre-arranged programmed sex, but other than those occasions, the window shades are, are always up. So we may be in the rather poor position of having some of the things come true out of a number of different dystopias. Uh, usually, the clothing doesn't come true. You know, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we're gonna have the clothing out of The Handmaid's Tale, uh, although it would be handy to be able to recognize people by their color codes. And we're probably not going to, in the West, go into full-scale Maoist uh, uniforms very soon. But um, we're probably going to get elements of several different ones. There have been utopias that have predicted things as well. Uh, looking backwards by Edward Bellamy predicted the credit card, <laughs> which is now with us. When David was talking to you about dystopias, you said, oh, you haven't, you haven't looked at American politics. What is it about American politics that worries you? <laughs> How shall I count the ways? Um, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And uh, I think Jean-Jacques Rousseau was right when he said democracy is the hardest form of government to maintain. And he also was very, very clear um, in his book, The Social Contract, on the necessity for keeping religion and politics separate, that you should not have a government that was um, a religiously uh, controlled government. And it was that book on which the American Constitution was based. 
So I think what worries me about American politics right now is that it, it's straying from its own ideals. You know, American politics is straying from uh, the things that is always held to be, to be true. Did you know, for instance, there are, that there are attempts being made right now in two different states in the United States to make um, ecological protests illegal and to make also illegal the funding of any organization that supports them? Did you know that? We don't know whether this legislation is going to pass it or not, but it's very telling that the attempt is even being made. Right. So it's the curtailing of freedoms, you know, that have always been uh, not only um, built into the Constitution, but, but maintained and idealized in America. The sliding away from that, that's what worries me. Okay, there's somebody over there, and I must, I'm, I'm, I've got a key light here, so I can't see into this bit, so I'm going to take, I think it's a, a person with red hair, yeah, there, and I apologise to the rest, but the red hair really does stand out in the light. Um, you write a lot, obviously, about dystopias, and they seem to be a warning, but do you think there's still a place for um, utopia in our cynical age? Where is that person? Over there. Over there, yes. Over there. Okay, okay. Do I think there's still a place for utopia in our thinking? Uh, we are a hopeful species, and in fact, we need to be a hopeful species, otherwise it would be hard to get out of bed in the morning. Um, so the idea of, of improving things still is with us and ought to be with us. Utopia becomes a danger when people think that they can improve things absolutely, that they need absolute power to do it, and that all they have to do is get rid of the people uh, who happen to disagree with them, and then everything will just be fine. So we have had two major attempts at utopia in the 20th century. That would be the Soviet Socialist Republic experiment and um, Nazi Germany. They both began as utopias. They both began by saying, things are going to be so much better, just give us a bit of time while we get rid of this untidiness that stands in the way. Uh, so that is the danger of utopia, the, the feeling that you can improve things absolutely all at once in a hurry, and that to do that you have to uh, break a lot of eggs, as uh, Lenin famously said. You can't make an omelet without breaking eggs, hands up everyone who wants to be an egg. So, <laughs> so that's the danger, but we, we, we need to keep thinking, you know, how can we make things better? We need to keep thinking that way. Part of that thinking is, uh, why aren't they better now? What's not better about them? And uh, will, they, will they be better or worse if we choose option A? Or will they be better or worse if we choose option B? A lot of the trouble we get into is our inability to think, um, think way down the road and also our inability to recognize unexpected consequences of our choices and inventions and changes. So yes, we need um, ameliorative thinking. No, we don't need someone to try to impose their version of utopia on us tomorrow. Um, Margaret, I read on um, the website that you were at a friend's cabin and the character of Jimmy kind of appeared to you fully formed in his bedsheet, in his predicament. 
Is that how you find your characters usually appear? Do you access them and then you write about them? They, they, they come fully formed. And do you find that you write them out or do they stay with you? Do people pop up from time to time and you wonder or deal with what might have happened later? Let's see. Um, this novel was somewhat unusual in that it did appear more or less all at once, but usually they don't do that. They start as a, a voice, a character, an image, an object, a scene, um, a dialogue, something like that. And sometimes I don't get them right away at all. I have, I have a sort of an idea. And I could start at several different, I could make several different starts on it which don't work out. And indeed, I have started and got quite far into a couple of novels that didn't work out. So. Uh, there's no one magic thing that always happens, and sometimes magic things happen that you think are going to be really great, and they aren't. So no instant solutions. <laughs> okay, two more quick ones, because I think people are sort of diving off the, for, for, for dinner appointments or restaurant bookings. Mm -hmm. Chat down here has been incredibly patient, and there. okay, you get it for sheer keenness uh, uh, over there as well. Just beat over, over you, I'm afraid, but she really is going for it. So this one here. Yeah, this one. Great. Um, what was the purpose of this book? Was it, for example, to try and scare us, or was it to try and think about what you were saying and do something about it? Um, can one happen without the other? I mean, there's no point doing something about a thing that isn't, uh, isn't getting a bit crucial. Uh, for instance, why did Panorama do the story about the chickens being injected with ground-up beef goo? Was that for fun? Uh, was it that they thought maybe people wouldn't like that? Um, was it that they thought maybe people should know about that? Or was it so that they'd have something to talk about at the breakfast table? Well, probably a combination of, of all of those, but writers don't write for, for those kinds of reasons, usually. They, they write because they're writers and because a story uh, seizes them and they become passionately interested in it. If I uh, had nothing in mind but a billboard, I'd, I'd do a billboard, and novels are in fact, about their characters mostly, and uh, I got interested in the character and the other characters and what would happen if they were uh, put in this situation and sent on this, on this path, which is a possible situation and a possible path. So you can take it either way you like. At the beginning, there's a quote from Gulliver's Travels in which um, the narrator says, I'm not telling you this to amuse you, but to inform you. Now, mind you, this is uh, said about a book which has got little weeny people, great big people, floating islands and talking horses in it. So it's your choice whether you want to be informed or amused. <laughs> and it's still your choice because you're the reader and once a book is out of the hands of the writer, it is in the hands of the reader. So it's up to you what you do with it. I certainly can't twist your arm. And the last one. Oh, I do beg your pardon. 
Thanks. Hi, I um, just want to ask you a writing question. Um, a lot of your books seem to be based on research, either into historical periods or ways of life. Um, could you just describe your process of writing when you have a lot of research to do? Do you do all the research first and then start the novel, or does it grow as you go? How, what is your process? I would um, advise against doing all the research first because people who do that tend to get very bogged down in it, and then they have trouble uh, going forward with the story, but of course there are always exceptions and nobody writes in the same way. I tend to just plunge in, and uh, then I come to a point where I need to check something, and that's when I go and look it up. Um, with this Oryx and Crake book, material accumulated as I was writing it, and in fact we've continued to accumulate it. We're, we're adding to the brown box because some of, the th some of the things I thought I was making up have since been done. Um, with Alias Grace, it involved quite a lot of going back into the microfiche copies of old newspapers and, and reading those, and those, those were essential because it was a story about a real person. So I needed to find out as much as had been written down about that person. With somebody like Iris in The Blind Assassin, I did go through a lot of old um, magazines, partly for the language, partly for the terminology, and particularly for what people were wearing at the time. <laughs> the cellophane hat is real, by the way. So I, I just I like things to be as, as real as they can be, although it's fiction. Um, I like the, I think it was Marianne Moore who, who said, imaginary gardens with real toads in them. So I like the toads to be real. So we can look forward to Oryx and Crake 2. It's even worse than I thought. <laughs> uh, can I do the obvious thing, which is to thank, well, actually to thank you first for the questions that you've asked, which I think were, were good ones, uh, but particularly to thank Margaret Atwood for being here and to hope that she's going to be at future Hay Festivals talking about other books. Um, in, uh, and I, I, I really hope that I get the chance to repeat this interview um, on a again more some point, subject. But, so, yeah, <laughs> um, whether or not. But uh, thank you very much, Margaret, for not chewing me out and spitting me out, and for being such a good person to listen to. Thank you. Thank you.